Hello and welcome to another episode of Science Shambles. Just before we get to the episode with Helen Chersky, once again sitting in the host chair for Robin while he is on tour with Brian Cox, just to remind you about a couple of gigs we've got coming up. This coming Sunday, July 7th, we will be doing Book Shambles live at Royal Albert Hall in the Elgar Room. Robin and Josie will be hosting that and we're very happy to say we've got two incredible special guests joining us for that. We will have the actor Wendell Pierce, who uh, you'll no doubt know from The Wire and Treme and Selma and perhaps you've just seen him at The Young Vic uh, in... Death of a Salesman, he will be one of our guests, as well as the comedian Reginald D. Hunter. Tickets for that are available from the Cosmic Shambles website and also from the Royal Albert Hall website. And then straight after that, July 8, for a week, Robin will be at the Soho Theatre with his Chaos of Delight show. And then we will be off to the festivals. You can catch lots of stuff with us at the Latitude Festival and also the Blue Dot Festival. We'll be doing things there with the play Signals and Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty's Universe of Music will be there. And at Latitude, we'll be doing a special mini revival of our Space Shambles. Uh, Robin will be hosting that. There will be Susie Imber will be there and astronaut Helen Sharman. Do not miss that on the Saturday, the anniversary, 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And finally, uh, thanks to everyone who came to our two Science Shamblesy shows at the RI in the last couple of weeks. Really nice to meet uh, a lot of the listeners there. Thank you for coming along to that. The first of those will be out as a podcast very soon. And remember, all the other podcasts uh, and blogs and videos and live event listings and everything is at CosmicShambles.com. You can support what we do at Patreon.com slash BookShambles, just a dollar a month to enable us to keep making all this stuff for you to enjoy. Anyway, enough of that. Here is uh, this week's episode. Here is Helen. Welcome to Science Shambles. Um, I'm standing in for Robin Ince this week. I'm Helen Chersky. And with me in our little studio here in Bloomsbury, I've got two fascinating guests who are experts on very different subjects, but that is only going to make the discussion even better. So uh, first up, we've got Andrew Steele, who is a Cosmic Shambles regular, uh, started off in physics, does computa did computational biology, and now apparently is considering his own demise <laughs> in the world of ageing. Um, and we also have uh, Marek Zibart, who is a professor of space geodesy at University College London. So I'm going to start with that because that's a very cool title. What, what is space geodesy? and what do you do as a professor of it? Space Geodesy is the subject of determining the dynamic characteristics of planets by putting spacecraft in orbit around them and bouncing radio waves off the surface and looking at the trajectories of the spacecraft and determining, you know, uh, is the planet changing in certain ways? Is sea level changing? How's the gravity field behaving? Plate tectonics, the earthquake cycle, that kind of thing. So it, it was really it was really interesting um, having a bit of a look at your work because I think there's there's sort of two sides of it. There's kind of I feel like as a kind of mirror that you can look at it one way or you can look at it the other way. That you can look at it as um, finding out where you are, or you can look at it as using where you are to learn something else. Is that right? Have I got that's, that right? That's exactly it. It's a kind of reverse inverse problem. So by looking at the ways the spacecraft move, you can determine the characteristics of the planet, and also by um, measuring the characteristics of the planet, you can figure out whether the spacecraft is better. 
Um, and I think this is, I'm, 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 you know, I've got a, I don't know about you, Andrew, and how often you get lost, but I'm kind of fascinated by navigation just as a concept, this, you know, this sort of idea of where you are in the world. And particularly because I recently did a course on celestial navigation, you know, how you learn, use the stars to learn where you are on Earth. And, and it's, it's fascinating because you kind of think, well, they're all up there and I'm down here and I can just look at them and know where I, know where I am. But actually what you spend a lot of time doing is making corrections. So you, you kind of get the big picture of where you are. And then you add a bit and then you take away a bit and then you adjust a bit. And I was fascinated by someone doing this 100 years ago to find out where they are on the ship because it sounds like a very crude process, right? And actually, I remember, I've seen you give a talk where you, you talked about some of the question of knowing where you are in space. And it's not dissimilar, right? You start with a big picture. But then what, what, are the, what are the corrections? What do you have to do to find out where you are in space? Essentially, if you want to find out where you are in space, you have to write down a set of equations that describe all the forces that are acting on the space vehicle. So, you know, the biggest one of that is, is Earth gravity. That's the one that really tugs everything. And uh, everything else, force-wise, is a thousand times smaller. But when you're trying to get down to figuring out where something is in space at the centimetre or millimetre level, which is what we try to do now, <clears throat> you've got to write down more and more sophisticated equations describing anything that exerts a push or a pull on the spacecraft. So that could be the, the gravitational pull of the moon or the sun, but it could also be an effect due to the impact of solar photons on the spacecraft, which transfer momentum and they push it. Or it might be the fact that the spacecraft itself is emitting photons in the form of a radio wave because it's transmitting a signal, and that creates a recoil force on the satellite. Or there's general relativity, or there's outgassing, or there are Lorentz forces. So there's a whole myriad of things we try to take care of. But it's good fun. It's good. It sounds like a lot of equations. And, it, and it's interesting because there is this sort of perception, certainly I thought this as a kid, I think, that an orbit, and you know, you learn orbits, and you have done this as well, as, as, as you know, in physics is, there's an equation, and it goes round and round, and it's a circle, or it's an ellipse, and it's kind of, it's nice, because you don't have to bother about it. You know, you, you get this impression that you put a satellite into, into orbit, and then you can leave it there, and it will stay put. And things don't stay put and it sounds horrendously complicated yeah, but perhaps what's worth saying is that it's really directly relevant to ordinary people anybody anybody want to do science but anybody want to do navigation anybody with a cell phone they they require an understanding of where these spacecraft are at the at least at the meter level to navigate in the city you need it at the meter level and but it, you know if you want to determine which lane you are in the traffic then you need to know where the spacecraft is better than the meter level um, because all these errors compound together so although the the science sounds very very complica complicated and perhaps irrelevant. And of course, the person down the street doesn't need to worry about that, but someone needs to take care of it. Uh, on the other hand, if you're trying to measure something like sea level change from space, which is what we try and do, then that's a signal of um, as you know, about three millimetres per year is, is global average sea level change. So if you're trying to measure a signal at that over the course of a year, then you've got to know where the spacecraft is, the thing that's bouncing the radio wave off the sea surface from which you're determining the geometry of that sea surface. You've got to know where that satellite is and at the centimetre level on a, on a daily basis. And, and that's where the complexities come in. But we also gain a lot of science for all this. We gain better understanding of the space environment, how things move in the space environment, how the space environment affects anything we put into space. And that's an important problem these days because of things like space debris, which is an emerging challenge for all of us, and things like the rise of these mega constellations in space, which are going to complicate space traffic management. So let's, let's 
pick up on those then. So when we were sitting outside just before, Andrew, you said something about the the view of the sky. Do you want to pick up on that bit of conversation? I'm quite worried about it, to be honest, because I'm an astrophotographer. That's one of my hobbies. And um, when you look up at the sky or when you take a long exposure photograph of the sky, you can often see these tiny moving pinpoint objects. And actually, the most spectacular of them is the International Space Station, the ISS. You can look up on the Internet when the ISS is due to pass over you. Um, this is actually quite a good time of year, the summer, because what happens is the ISS is about uh, 150 kilometres above the Earth. Is that right? And... You, can't, you have to be careful with a professor sitting next to you, yeah, don't professor you? Professor of Space Geodesy, you can probably tell me in millimetres. Um, but given that altitude, it means that because it's the summertime now, it can be in sunlight and we can be in sort of dusk or dawn time. And that means you can see this incredibly bright dot just working its way across. And in the course of a few minutes, you can watch it cross, the, uh, cross over the sky. And that's a really incredible thing to see. But if you imagine that this, um, this proposal to put up you know, 10,000, 12,000 satellites to provide internet access around the world, that's going to mean there are more satellites potentially than visible stars. It's going to mean there are these little sort of crawling insects all over the surface of the sky at all times, wherever you are in the world. And whilst it's the ve- you know, in the very depths of night, in the middle of winter, these things might not be in the sunlight, so they might not be reflecting. What these incredible videos of this uh, SpaceX launch have shown is that you can see this train basically throughout the night in places like you know Brighton and London, not even that far north in the Northern Hemisphere. So this really is going to dramatically change what our night sky looks like. So let's just roll back for a little bit of context here because we are recording this on uh, May 29th, which is actually, it turns out, also the 100th anniversary of the solar eclipse that let people demonstrate that general relativity was correct, which is a nice thing. Um, so 100 years on from that, we've, put, we've used general relativity and now we've We've got, got a whole set of different issues. So, Marek, this business of the this particular mega constellation that Andrew was talking about, tell us what that is. So there's a gold rush going on at the moment. So traditionally, to have uh, communication from space, you stick satellites out at a place called geostationary orbit, which is about six Earth radii above the surface of the Earth, about 36,000 kilometres. But those satellites tend to be very, very high power because they've got to transmit signals from a long, long way away. They're huge, very, very expensive satellites. It's now been proved that technically one can uh, put satellites in low Earth orbit, so that means maybe from, say, 500 to 1,500 kilometres above the surface of the Earth, and the the, the problems of uh, building a network like that that can communicate with mobile devices has now been cracked. And so there's, there's a market there, and it's all being driven by commerce. So various... Um, Entrepreneurs, the, the big entrepreneurs, the, the, the Jeff Bezos's, the Elon Musk's, the Mark Zuckerberg's, those people with the financial muscle to do this kind of thing are now getting involved in the space domain purely because they see it as a commercial opportunity. So let's just let's just step let's just come, make sure we've got that first. So the idea here is that um, instead of having satellites a long way away from Earth, you can bring them in close, have lots of them, and then what what can you use them for? Why do you want all these little satellites in close? Yeah, so there are many parts to what I mean. Let's look from actually. Let's be more positive about it from a humanitarian perspective. There are many parts of the world where the internet is not available, and these satellites will give you global coverage. So you could be in in the in the heart of Mauritania in the desert, and then you'd be able to connect to the global internet. Um, and so that would actually change many many things in a very positive way. So this kind of global coverage of um, what we you know small satellites operating in low Earth orbit. Um, thousands and thousands of them to make it work to get that global coverage, it will essentially create a much more connected world for everyone. So that's the good bit. That's the good bit. So tell me what's happened in the past week or so and why it has been controversial. Yeah. So the controversial side of it is that 
First of all, this is a gold rush. And, you know, if, if you think of historically what gold rushes were all about, it was about people scrabbling to get their, get their feet on the ground and get ownership of something very rapidly. So this is happening in an almost uncontrolled manner because there you know, the space is like the Wild West. There's no real law that, that, that covers how people behave and controls how they behave. So um, various characters are planning to launch satellites thousands of satellites, what we call mega constellations. So we're talking at a minimum a thousand satellites operating in a shell fairly close to the surface of the Earth. A thousand kilometers is close to the surface of the Earth. Um, but various people are vying to get there first, and they have big ambitions. So Elon Musk uh, from SpaceX is launching a baseline constellation of about 4,400 satellites, and he wants to expand that up to 12,000 satellites. And let's just put that in context of the number of satellites that have ever been launched from Earth. So he wants to launch 4,000. Do you know off the top of your head, well, how many satellites are in orbit now? Yeah, you know? operationally, there are around 2,000 satellites in space. So, and that's, you know, uh, Earth observation, doing the sort of atmospheric and oceanic measurements that I do, and communication satellites and spy satellites, 2,000 of them. Yeah, the whole kit and caboodle, 2,000 satellites, plus a number of satellites perhaps that are doing slightly more nefarious things that we might not know about so so but you know first order 2000 so we're talking about an order of magnitude change in number of satellites and no one's ever done that before this is actually a sort of a bifurcation point for our species because all of a sudden we're going to have a huge it's rather like taking the m25 and then it's not going to end well. Whatever this sentence is about to be, it's not going to end well. It's, not end well. <laughs> it's, actually, it's a bit like the M25 can possibly end well. Anyway, carry on. But by a factor of 10, putting many, many more vehicles on there. And then a, a correlated problem is what happens if they start going wrong? Because the, one of the things about space debris, let's say two of these satellites clunk into each other. Now, these things are moving fast. They could have conjunction speed in low Earth orbit of, let's, let's say... 14, 15 kilometres per second. So conjunction yeah. speed is the speed they hit each other at. Yeah, yeah. So imagine, imagine these, these the satellites that Elon Musk launched, about, about the size of a Mini Cooper with a, with a sort of sideboard attached to it for the, for the, for the solar power. So, I love this because it sounds like something out of uh, Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> boy in space. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, let's, not, let's not say that because these are serious people. But imagine two of those things moving towards each other. So the, the speed by which they're converging is... 15 kilometers per second. So when they hit each other, they carry extreme momentum. And so when they hit each other, they're going to shatter apart. And that debris is going to move into that shell where these satellites are operating. Now, it's not impossible that we're looking at something called the Kessler syndrome here. And the Kessler syndrome is where you get two satellites hit each other, create a debris cloud. That debris cloud rushes out into space and it hits other satellites they get disabled they spin out of control they hit other satellites and then eventually you just have this maelstrom of bits of metal flying around which make makes it impossible to, to act in space to operate in space so how likely is that and i mean presumably people have thought about is there is anyone trying to stop elon musk does anyone think they he should be stopped how accurately can you know where any of these things are i mean is this is this a serious problem this year or next year what what happens next yeah it's a problem right now it's something that people need need to think about but the difficulty is about how you possibly stop somebody doing something like this because there is no legislation in space you know we have the united nations has a um, 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 a department acting on the peaceful uses of outer space 
but you can't force anybody to behave one way or another. Now, the only thing that might influence this is what we call the tragedy of the commons, because if space becomes saturated with these satellites and we do start getting something like a Kessler syndrome occurring, then nobody can use it. So at some point, reality will kick in to these commercial operators when they realise that they themselves will not be able to carry out their operations there. But at the moment, it feels... There's a lot of anxiety, I would say, actually, because this is happening now. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the OneWeb constellation, which will be about a 1,000 satellites, that's being launched. Um, Elon Musk has started with his launch. So the, the technical barriers to this have gone. It, it can feasibly happen. People can produce these satellites. You know, two of these satellites can be built a day in a factory. 60 can be launched at one, one go from a single reusable launch vehicle. So there's no barriers to stop this happening. So it will happen, and it is happening now but we are not really fully prepared for the consequences. So it strikes me, listening to that, that you know, in the, in the doomsday film scenario, which maybe isn't that unrealistic, all it takes is one rogue operator to fire a teddy bear almost somewhere, and that could set that off. Is that, am I overstating the case here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure too many people are launching teddy bears, but you know, historically there have been... Um, there was an event happened uh, in the in about, about 2007 um, called the Fengyuan-1C event, which is when the, the Chinese launched what we call a direct ascent anti-satellite test. They launched a ballistic missile and they blew up an old weather satellite. And in one go, they created a, a vast cloud of debris that in just that one collision made things much harder, made, made it much harder to operate. It caused a lot of problems with the space station, meant, meant lots of people had to try and manoeuvre their satellites out of the way of the debris. And that That event created thousands of pieces of debris in space that are dangerous. Now, that was at a time when the number of satellites operating low Earth orbit was, was relatively low. Now we're changing, by an order of magnitude, the number of potential targets that could be hit by the debris. So it really is a step change. And what it needs, more than anything else, is space traffic management. So at one time, if you think about, about aircraft, you know, people used to fly aircraft, they started developing planes. Eventually, it got to the point when people, lots of people were trying to fly into the same airport. And so reality kicked in, and, and there had to be a way of, of controlling that. So you have you know, air, air traffic control systems. You had uh, aircraft carrying beacons saying, this is where I am right now, alerting people to their presence. So um, in time, that's going to happen. Now, that in, in the United States... The, you know, the, the, the United States government, um, they are thinking about this. They're having debates in, in Congress about these kind of things. But we don't yet have the technology. So, we're, so there's a bit of wait and see. Uh, for, and it's, it strikes me that a lot of this is, we're talking about putting things up. We're not, you haven't talked yet about things coming down. But mm. presumably things, you know, a satellite does its job, even if it does a good job and lasts 20 years, it's it's just adding to the problem. So what what about bringing things down? What's what's that game like? Yeah, so we call that deorbiting. And the the thing is that if you've got control over a satellite, then in theory you can uh, arrest its momentum and you can lower the height of its orbit, and eventually the uh, the the atmosphere of the Earth will make the thing burn up. Right. Um, now the current guidelines on deorbiting are that you should be able to deorbit something within twenty five years. But now and that's kind of out the window now we need to bring things out much faster and the people launching these mega constellations they say oh we have the technology to do that but the problem is not an operational satellite the problem is a satellite that goes wrong and if you look at the history of human behavior in space it's you launch something into space you think it's going to do something and then it does something that you weren't prepared for 
So how worried should we be about any of this? Is this the sort of thing that has to be sorted out? You know, governments have to make decisions or... Because it sounds like, you know, the three of us in this little studio here, there's not a lot that we... Well, maybe you can do something about this. But the rest of us, do we just have to sit and watch this happen? Wait for the uh, low Earth orbit apocalypse? No, we don't have to wait for it to happen. And actually, people like myself are very concerned about this. And we are carrying out studies and we are lobbying and lobbying in the United States and, and debating the issue. And I think actually... The very fact that we're talking about it on this podcast is a good thing. I think if people become aware of it, it's, it's rather like the climate change issue in the 1970s. People had to be made aware of these things because they affect everybody. So once, once people become aware of it and then people start talking about it and it starts being debated on Twitter and then it becomes a thing in the world, that's a good thing in and of itself. Well, I think it's certainly being debated on Twitter from what I saw yesterday. So I'm just going to let Andrew get in here. It's a slight, slight left turn at traffic lights. But since we've got to satellites aging and what, end, what happens at the end of a satellite's life, we're going to make a very inelegant turn into what happens at the end of a human's life. So you are writing a book on aging. What, where did that... You, so you've had this journey through different topics. What was it about why aging? Yeah, so I did a, a degree and a PhD, in fact, in physics before I decided to, to start looking at aging. And toward the end of my PhD, I just started reading more and more about this subject. And the the first thing is it's the single biggest cause of human suffering. And that might sound like a slightly strange statement because it's a very natural process that, you know, throughout human history, it's something that everybody has undergone. But actually, if you look at the causes of death around the world, the big causes of death are cancer, they're heart disease. They're all these different diseases that come um, as we get older. And in fact, being old is the single biggest risk when it comes to contracting something like Alzheimer's or cancer. I'd rather be a, you know overweight, chain-smoking 30-year-old than even a really clean-living 80-year-old just because I've got such a, an increased chance of getting those diseases as we get older. And if you add up all the deaths around the world, you get about 150,000 deaths a day. About 100,000 of those deaths are caused by diseases that are caused by ageing. So it's this absolutely enormous problem. And what's really exciting about it is, you know, you can look at that and sort of have a bit of a cry. Or you can say what's happened in the last sort of 10, 20 years in science has shown to us that we now have the tools to start intervening in the ageing process, at least in the lab. And those first uh, sort of baby steps we're taking in the lab are starting to branch out into clinical trials. And as a consequence, I just thought this is something that I've got to get involved in because this is the way to alleviate the most possible suffering with my career. So how do you, I mean, how we... Cause we're assuming we can't turn the clock backwards here, but you might be able to slow down the process. No, so tell, maybe tell us could. what aging is to start with, because, I mean, we have cells, you know, you and I now, we all have cells in our body that are growing and living and dying, and that's just part of the natural cycle of life. What changes as we get older? So there's a whole variety of different things, and I think what we've discovered in the last uh, 10, 20 years, as I said, is that there isn't one ageing process. There are a variety of different things. So we're all getting old in 10 different ways. Exactly. But what we found is that each of those 10 different ways, you can find a way to intervene in that process. And it isn't just about slowing it down. There are things that slow things down, but there are also things that can turn back the clock. And I think the most exciting recent development, and this is one of the ones that actually is making its way into clinical trials now, um, as you're talking about, you know, your cells dividing, and then eventually at some point, there's a, they can reach something called cellular senescence. They can divide so many times that they just stop. And this was discovered back in the 60s, actually. But everyone just thought it was a weird quirk of cells in a dish for a very long time, until finally we're now starting to develop the ability to detect these cells uh, reliably in living animals, things like mice and things like people. And what was discovered in 2011, a paper came out where some genetically modified mice were given a drug that, because they were genetically modified, killed their senescent cells. 
Now, for a long time, senescent cells, as I say, were thought to be this artifact, or they were thought to be this sort of harmless thing. But actually, these mice seemed to get a lot younger, a lot healthier. They uh, were more curious. They had better heart function. They even had nicer fur. And so then uh, the, the trials have slowly moved on, looking at more and more uh, variations on this theme. They've, tr- they've now tried Love it. In... The, I've got completely sidetracked by the idea of a mouse with nicer fur, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, it, it's really funny. I've, <laughs> for this book, I've read a lot of papers. And every single mouse experiment where they reverse aging in a mouse, they complement its amazing looking fur. It's incredible. I mean, it, I, and I guess if you're working with mice every day, that's a really obvious visual thing. You don't have to do some complicated test. You just go, God, he's got lovely fur. <laughs> so, so what happens... So. First of all, did the mice still die at the same age? Is it no. that they have a higher quality of life or is yes. it just that they just keep going? Yeah, so the, and the crucial thing is that it's very, very hard to make something live for longer but not improve its quality of life at the same time. Because if you think about all the things that make your life unpleasant to live, you know, things like arthritis, things like uh, mental cognitive impairment, that sort of stuff, these are all caused by the same processes that ultimately, when they get bad enough, we start to call diseases. And so if you can intervene in the underlying causes that are making you more likely to get the disease, making you more likely to get these different dysfunctions, you find that uh, because you're not frail, you're going to live longer. And it's not the other way around. It's very, very hard to you know, preserve a mouse in some horrible, decrepit, ancient state and have it live any longer. So, yeah, these things are definitely linked. But there are cases in nature. That, so I remember... Um interviewing someone about bats a few years ago and there's this weird if you look at rodents you know the bigger they get the longer they live and you know there's hamsters that live about two years and rabbits live a bit longer and then the bat lives for 42 years or something ridiculous like that so um, do you know i mean do you know about the bat what is it about the bats like because they've obviously solved this problem a bit before the scientists got there yeah it's very interesting because uh, and, and we think we understand why ageing evolves in this way. So there's a very strong correlation between size and lifespan. The bigger the animal, the longer it tends to live. But there are these notable exceptions. And in the case of rodents or sort of small mammals, we've got bats that are this huge exception. And another animal called a naked mole rat, which you might have heard of. It's a weird burrowing um, relative of mice and rats. It's probably got lovely fur. It, it hasn't actually got no fur. That's why it's called it? naked. <laughs> it looks a little bit like a penis with teeth, is what I was thinking. They're not the most beautiful of animals, but they do, again, live an incredibly long time. Maybe lovely fur would help them. It might do. Yeah, I mean, it certainly would in terms of uh, getting... Yeah, so, they, so they, they've cracked the aging They've cracked thing. it, and the reason they've cracked it is because, um, imagine you're a mouse, you're scurrying around on the floor, you know, trying to evade cats, you're trying to evade disease, and what it means is that in the, in the wild, a mouse has a lifespan of about six months. So imagine that your evolution, you're trying to allot the energy that this mouse has got to live its life. You can uh, spend it like you know, quickly cranking out some kids, basically, or you can spend it building a beautiful, robust mouse body that's going to live, you know, till the age of 40. And evolution has gone, well, this mouse is going to be eaten after six months anyway. So what I've got to do is make sure it cranks out the kids as fast as possible. Now, bats, it's because they can fly. It really is as simple as that. That means that evolution has said, you know, you're uh, aloft, you're nocturnal in a lot of cases. And so you're, you know, much less susceptible to predation. And that means that you can then afford to build these anti-cancer defences. You can afford to build stuff that will prevent you from getting heart disease, prevent you from cognitive decline. And so over the you know, millennia where since bats and uh, mice diverged from their common ancestor, the bats and the naked mole rats and the naked mole rats live underground, so again, they're safe from predators. They've been able to live longer and longer and develop more and more robust defences against ageing, whereas something like a mouse will conk out after a couple of years in the lab. And so do the, the bats and the naked mole rats, do they do, do, they do the same things that people are talking about doing humans just to go back to the human research or is it a whole different set of things that they do in order to live longer i think there's definitely stuff to be learned from longer lived animals but the problem is that um 
the, the context is very different, right? So the way in which, you know, say you find a gene in a naked mole rat that means it's much more resistant to cancer, because that's one of the things that we know that they are. They almost, they were thought to never get it actually until a few years ago when the first ever naked mole rat tumour was found. So say you find a gene in a naked mole rat you think might be able to, you know, prevent cancer. The problem is that gene is working in the context of a naked mole rat, and they've got bajillions of other genetic differences between themselves and humans. So it's quite unlikely that you could, you know, excise that gene and stick it in the human genome and see the same effect. That said, they obviously do, you know, they, they've learned to crack it in some way. And I think the more exciting animals from our point of view are things like elephants and whales, because, you know, an, even a naked mole rat only lives 30 years, so that's substantially less than a human. But whales can live a couple of centuries. And not only that, they're much, much bigger than people, which is quite exciting from a cancer perspective. Because if you think about the cells in a blue whale, they're actually not a great deal larger than the cells in a human being. It's just they've got loads and loads more of them. And if you think of every single cell as sort of a, a little mini risk for a cancer tumour forming, then they've got a vastly increased risk because their bodies, you know, they, they weigh tonnes and humans weigh, you know, 100 kilos tops. And um, that means that they've got this huge 200-year lifespan. They've got these tonnes and tonnes of cells and yet somehow they aren't all dead of cancer, you know, after the first decade. So do you really, here's a question then, do you really want to live for two? So I think 100 plus a bit. So, you, you know, if, if we were all to live to 200 now, first of all, as Marek has basically just told us, all this, we're not going to have GPS anymore because all the satellites will have, you know, exploded. We're not going to have antibiotics. There's a lot. Of, do you... Do you do we need all these extra people that may not be able to have the same quality of life as we do now? Because we're, I mean, we're what, huge, many billions of people now. But if the population gets any bigger, if everyone gets older, more old people hanging around, more people on the planet, no GPS. I mean, it's not looking good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very worried about this. I'm very worried about climate change. And actually, that was when I'd uh, finished my PhD. One of the things I considered doing was going into climate physics precisely because I had this ridiculous idea of trying to make the biggest difference in the world that I could with my career. Um, so I did some calculations on the population stuff. If we literally cured death in 2025... And that's not just ageing, that's literally nobody dies after the year 2025, which I think you'll agree with me is an implausible ambition. Um, then the population in 2050, rather than being 9.8 billion, would be about 10.8 billion. So it'd be a little bit bigger, but it wouldn't be vastly, ridiculously larger. And if you look at something like fighting climate change, we've basically got to take our emissions per person on the planet down to zero in order to solve that problem. And so making that problem 10 or 20% harder, in my opinion, would be absolutely worth it because you'd be giving all of these people so much more quality of life. And at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. It's about these diseases. It's about the five or 10 years you spend at the end of life, you know, decreasingly able to be independent. So if you think about your you know, older relatives, they're you know, gradually being confined to their homes or even taken to somewhere for residential care. That's what I want to get rid of. And if it means that people live a bit longer as a side effect, I think when you go through the consequences of what that would actually be, they are dwarfed by the present day impact of ageing. And how about, because I mean, the biggest growing problem now in, in human health in the Western world is dementia. And, you know, I, I have to confess, sometimes I see, you know, I, I see people wearing T-shirts for uh, heart, you know, heart health charities. And I think compared one heart attack compared with 30 years of dementia, I'll take the heart attack, you know, when my time comes. So dementia is a the cognitive decline is presumably the hardest thing to deal with is there any is there any hope of improving that well how does that fit into the aging thing because no one wants to be older and helpless no definitely not that's that would be terrifying and um i think the, the the key the key thing here is that we should be researching these individual diseases like alzheimer's and dementia but by understanding these processes that take place 
as a natural part of our bodies getting older, things like the accumulation of senescent cells that I mentioned earlier. We can develop treatments for that. We make it less likely that you'll get Alzheimer's in the first place. So rather than having to effectively come in and pick up the pieces, which is what a lot of modern medicine does, it looks at the you know, brains of people with Alzheimer's and goes, God, they're absolutely ridden with these things called amyloid plaques. And so decades have been spent trying to come up with medicines that will get in there and break these plaques apart and try and cure people. But these people are so far gone that you know that their cognitive abilities are lot, you know, there might not even be memories in there to recover. And if we were to intervene potentially decades earlier and slow down the process that makes it more likely for you to get Alzheimer's, I think that's the way that we're really going to have an impact on human health. Okay, so there's a question I've got for both of you then, which is that we've talked about these big ideas. We can see the future is coming quite quickly. And because information travels so quickly and um, you know we can share ideas so quickly and we have a huge population... There's a lot of things that could happen and there's a question of who, who decides, right? We're reaching, I think this is essentially where we're realising Earth is finite. We've got one planet. We are not, however well we can navigate in the near future, going anywhere else. So, so, but if we do all the things that are possible, we put all the satellites into the atmosphere we could, we make everyone older because we can. Like, do we want, to, how does society decide? Who decides? Who, who gets to do what? So in the realm of space, for example, who decides? who's allowed to put up satellites should do can we decide how does this work in a democratic way is it democratic well <clears throat> the evolution of the technology it has various drivers some of them are scientific drivers and you know the the some of them are geopolitical drivers so for example the fact that we have viable space platforms now primarily came because of an arms race and you know the launch vehicles came came from the desire to blow blow each other up so it's quite difficult ethically to sort of pre pre guess what are going to be the uh, the consequences. You have a law of you know a, a law of, of, of unforeseen consequences comes into all this. Some of it's commercial, some of those drivers, and it seems to be uncontrollable. But I am minded in all this of the of the Malthus principle, you know, the Malthusian principles that eventually nature will intervene and the system will reset at some at some point. The planet will be fine. We might we may not be. The reset may be painful and awful, but it may come. The interesting thing is, can we, as, as a species, start to learn from history and look back and make smart decisions and work together and develop policies? I'm hopeful of that. <laughs> I was waiting to see what your facial expression was going to be when you finished that sentence. Yeah, I think it's just vitally important that we involve governments around the world. And the other, um, another strand of my campaigning is that I like to talk a lot about science funding. And I think the only way that we're going to get progress in space technology, the only way we're going to get progress in the biology of ageing, is if governments come together and set some sort of mission-driven grand challenges to try and solve these problems. And climate change is another brilliant example. Because if we can work together, the, the, the cost of the scientific research to solve these problems is, is peanuts compared to things that are spent in the other parts of the economy. When I was um, doing a lot of digging around science funding numbers, I tried to convince myself, I tried to find an example where science looked expensive, right? And one of the most expensive single items in the world is, in fact, I think the most expensive single item is the International Space Station. $150 billion largely invested by the US. And I thought, you know, God, how, how can you possibly justify that amount of cash? But if you divide that um, between the American population over the 30 or so years... The Russians contributed to this as well. Yeah, they, they threw they? in a few billion, but let's just ignore that contribution for simplicity's sake. Um, it comes out as about $17 per American per year. And that is literally our one crude outpost in space right now. So I just can't... It, 
even if you take the most absurd, ridiculous seeming massive expenses that humankind has undertaken in terms of science and technology, they just are dwarfed by the scale of the problems that we could potentially be solving with them. And it's the same with health research. If we just put in a few more pounds per person per year, we could radically change the way that the rest of our lives look. And I think if you apply that into all loads of other spheres, then it's just international collaboration between governments doing this scientific research is going to save us. I think, well, that's a very scientific thing to say. And we are all scientists in this room, but even I think that is very much the scientist's point of view um, because it's about how you apply it, right? We're dealing with very complex systems. And, you know, when you're curing, when you're, you know, discovering germ theory, for example, Louis Pasteur, is it Pasteur? That was germ theory, wasn't it? Um, you know, that there's, a, there's a problem that you can identify very quickly and makes an immediate difference. But now we're dealing with billions of people who all think about things differently and systems that need to be, you know, it's, it's I'm not sure that knowledge is what's holding us back. I think more knowledge is a good thing because it should allow decisions to be made. But fundamentally, we make decisions emotionally and, you know, often. And I think that if you offer, if you say to someone, well, you know, maybe the GPS system becomes defunct, but there's another shiny thing and you'll know where you are even more accurately. People go, oh, I have the shiny toy, perhaps. Or they won't if they think it's, it's you know, some spy agency taking over their lives. Like, I, I feel that science isn't, I am absolutely an advocate of science-based policy, but I do think that the solutions, it's not just about more science. I mean, I don't know, have you got opinions I on that? Or you... a, sorry, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but I think that the reason that I've chosen to focus on it in that way, which can come across as a bit sort of scientistic in a negative sense. Scientistic, I um, like that word. Is because I think it's the place where a small number of people can make a difference. I think if I go and campaign to the UK government, they're not guaranteed to change their mind, but I've at least got a lever through which I can access billions of pounds worth of science funding. Whereas if I want to reinvent humanity into some sort of more positive species, that's a challenge that's beyond us in this podcast studio to deal with. And I'm not saying that that means we shouldn't invest in it at all, but if I, as an individual, want to make the biggest possible contribution, which is what I'm aiming to do, perhaps uh, you know, perhaps very naively, then I feel that the way to do that is to tell people about how cheap you know what we could have for how cheap by investing in science and it's not going to solve all the problems but i just think it's the best that i can do mark yeah, my take on it is we must have, we have to avoid hubris J jared diamond wrote a really interesting book called collapse which which sort of showed the patterns of behavior which which were present in societies at the point at which they collapse catastrophically and one of those things is this blind faith that we can engineer our way out of out of these things and that individuals don't have to take responsibility and somebody else will sort it out for us the roman empire at its height would have never have conceived that they could they could fall. The Mayan civilization was an astonishing, you know, an apotheosis of civilization at that time, and yet it collapsed entirely. And we have to learn from that. What a positive note to finish on. If we learn our history, we might save our future. Um, thank you very much to Andrew Steele and Professor Marek Gibart. Um, and if you would like to support the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can pledge as little as $1 a month at patreon.com uh, slash bookshambles. Or even better for you, you can get something from the online shop at cosmicshambles.com back uh, slash shop uh, and that's got all kinds of goodies in it signed books uh, by robin and other people i think and tote bags and caps and all kinds of fun things um you can also see the cosmic shambles people live at various festivals at cheltenham at latitude and blue dot and various others you can go to the cosmic shambles website to find out about them and we are traveling around the country a lot this year so it's worth a look of course in december there are uh, nine lessons and carols for curious people and the compendium of reason in december that's your christmas treat so uh, get your tickets for those now because they're going very quickly and everything else that is on the cosmic shambles network there's podcasts and documentaries and blogs live events all of that is on cosmicshambles.com
Thank you very much for listening. A reminder, we will be at the Elgar Room, in the Elgar Room, I should say, at the Royal Albert Hall this coming Sunday, July 7th, with Robin and Josie and Reginald D. Hunter and Wendell Pierce. Do come along to that. CosmicShambles.com for Patreon supporting and blogs and other podcasts and everything else. We'll be back with a new episode uh, next week. Speak to you all soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Thank you.